Ben. Uh, so as you well know, we've been in a study. Um, we've been in a study of Romans uh, for the last seven weeks since we are on chapter seven. So we're on seven. A few gaps in between, right? So does anybody remember from our study what is the theme of the book of Romans? Does anybody know where to find that theme or what that theme is? Yes, the gospel is the theme. That's a good answer. It's a good answer, even if it's a little, little bit like cheating. But yes, um, anybody remember where we find the theme of Romans? 1, 16, and 17, right on. That's what I'm talking about, sister. Extra points to Denise for knowing. In fact, I think you said it before, and I didn't hear you. So, right? So what Paul... Yeah, that's, we'll give you two points, two extra points. So... Um, what Paul says is that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel and that God's getting glory from this gospel message. And so this is the theme of the book of Romans. As you might remember, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and we don't know how that church started. There are other churches where we can say, well, this apostle got there, and he started preaching the gospel, and then this church formed. Uh, we can trace Paul's missionary journeys, and we see here's where he planted that church and that church and that church. Uh, churches that Peter, you could argue, started. But Rome, nobody knows. Our best guess is that there were Jews that were living in Rome that had come to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast when the day of Pentecost happened, and that they all got saved and went back to Rome, and that's how the church started. Uh, that's kind of cool if that's happened. We don't know. But Paul is concerned because the Roman church does not have anybody giving them clear doctrine. And so this book is like a systematic theology where Paul is essentially saying, hey, since I can't get to you physically, here's what you need to know. Like, here is the essentials of the doctrines. And of course, when he's writing about that, what does he do but give us an overview of the gospel in great detail? Now, a couple of key things I'm just going to remind you. You guys remember chapters like one through three were kind of a bummer, right? Because he was going through saying how like, well, yes, we're all under sin. The Jew is under sin because they can't keep the law. Uh, the pagan is under sin because they just sin against God all the time. Uh, the moralist is condemned because even though he might not be as bad as the pagan, he's still not living up to the law of God, living up to even his own standards. And so what we essentially get is that everybody has sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of God's glory. Everybody except Jesus. Um, and then what we see in chapter 4 and ongoing is that salvation is completely by faith. Um, and we see this review. Even Abraham is saved by faith. Uh, you know, there was nobody saved by doing the works of the law. Uh, and so we get through all of this, and we get to chapter 6, and Paul gives us this cool explanation of how, hey, guess what? You have died to sin. The language there is like when you were baptized into Christ, it was as if you were baptized into his death. It was as if you were crucified on the cross with him. And so you're dead to sin and you need to reckon yourself dead to sin. Right. And so he goes to this whole explanation, which leads us up here to chapter seven. Cool. So if you would turn with me to chapter seven. Um, anybody remember, Paul also has this rhetorical method where he asks a question and then answers it. And he seems to anticipate as you're reading what your next question is going to be. And so he goes as and asks, asks it for you and then answers it usually with an emphatic no. Does anybody remember the Greek phrase that he uses? Meganoita. Meganoita. I teach Greek every now and then here, right? It is, there is not an English equivalent that does not inv involve the use of a profane word. 
But it is Paul being as emphatic as possible to say, absolutely not. So when he says, like, well, should we sin that grace would abound? And he says, absolutely not. Although he's using a Greek phrase that is incredibly firm. All right, so all that said, we're caught up. Now we're in chapter 7. All right, so could I get someone to read verses 1 through 3? Go for it, brother. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, so this is kind of a big deal, right? Um, we understand, Paul continues to use kind of human language here to illustrate something. But we understand that if a woman is married and her husband dies and she gets remarried, she's not an adulteress, right? Um, her husband's died. Like, she's, she's free to marry again, and that's, that's okay, right? Paul's using that same language, and he is saying, uh, remember, he used slavery language before, though. And he says, when he was talking about sin... And he talks about us being a slave to sin in chapter 6. All slavery language, right? Now he's using language of marriage. And he's saying it is as if we were married to the law before, right? But rather in this case, it's not the woman's husband who dies. In this case, it's like she's the one who has died and is now in a new life. And so the language here is that you were once wed to the law. Now you are no longer wed to the law. You are free in regards to the law. Now, there's all kinds of stacked up theology ahead of this that Paul is using, uh, namely that Jesus has already perfectly obeyed the law and died in our place. But we, of course, have been crucified with Christ, so it's as if we were on the cross with him. Now we have all of the righteousness of Christ as if we perfectly obeyed the law too. And yet now we're not under the law in the same way. Uh, the concept of double jeopardy, you all are familiar with this in, in law, that you cannot be tried twice for the same crime. Um, there was a popular, quasi-popular movie in the 90s with Ashley Judd where she's falsely accused of murdering her husband, and then she serves her time and gets out and then kills him because she can't go to jail for it again. Um, interestingly enough, uh, maybe not the best illustration here. All right, but understand what Paul is bringing up here is he's like, just as if you had died. He's carrying on that theme, and he's like, so you're not under the law. Like, this is a big deal because there is a whole group of people that were called Judaizers at the time that were saying, if you're going to be saved, you have to perfectly obey the law. And Jesus has already come and proven that like nobody but him can obey the law. Right? So everybody's with us on this. This is important because we value the fact that God has communicated his morality in the law. He's communicated perfect ethics. And Paul's already made it very clear. The law is not bad, but we're not going to be saved by obeying it, and we can't obey it on our own. Something else has to happen. So cautiously here, let's continue. So somebody want to read verses 4 through 6. But now by dying to what once 
what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so this is important because the language here is not merely that you aren't going to be condemned under the law. That's an important piece of it. But notice what he, what he communicates. He says that, man, before you were under the law and you were actually bearing fruit for sin. It was as if the law, because it's perfect and you were sinful, it was like the law was agitating you to sin more. Uh, notice in Romans 1, we talked about how the unbeliever suppresses the truth in their unrighteousness, right? Uh, Paul probably has the Jew in mind a little bit here who was maybe trying to obey the law without the heart that's supposed to go with it. And what we see is this idea that like, oh, I had sinful passions that were kind of getting stirred up by the law in the same way if you all have heard of this experiment where they set out a whole bunch of cookies on a table and they say, well, you can eat any of the cookies except the Oreos. And inevitably, people will eat the Oreos like every time. And the same way, if I have a sin nature, there is wickedness in me that wants to rebel against God. And so when I find out, oh, God's law says not to do this, guess what? I'm going to do it even more, right? And that's what we see happening in the sin nature. The law, it says, is laid dormant. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Or the sin is laid dormant. And that the law essentially just lets you know, here's how bad your sin is. And so the sinner says, awesome, let's do it more. And that's what Paul is communicating, that under the law, in my sin, I sinned more. But the language now is that I'm in the spirit and I am to bear fruit according to the new code in the spirit. Now, does this mean that the law was bad? No, I think we answered that pretty well last week, that like the law is not bad, sin is bad, but sin gets an occasion uh, in the law. So let's continue. Uh, Well, he's going to answer this because notice what he says. What shall we say, that the law is sin? Don't you love how Paul anticipates the question? Uh, Could I get someone to read verses 7 through, a little bit longer, but 7 through 12? Oh, Dan's got his hand up first. Dan, go for it. I'll give you the next one. (laughs) He said it first, but your hand up was first, so I'm giving it to you, Dan. Okay, so Paul is using specifically the issue of not coveting. And he's like, okay, we're commanded not to covet. He's like, I probably wouldn't even realized what it was until the law, like a standard, had been held up against me. And you realize, oh no, I'm covetous. But what happens to a person who has a sin nature? When I recognize that I'm covetous, that like that law doesn't fix anything in me, right? It just shows me how sinful I am. So now I'm, it's, it's like having 
Well, I'll speak as a short person. It's like saying, in order to do whatever it is that you're to do, you have to be this tall. And so we have this, like, you know, six-foot standard right next to us, although it would be much higher than that. And I'm standing next to it, and I recognize, okay, I don't measure up. Like, I, I don't. Like, I'm five foot seven with, with tall shoes on, right? I am simply not there. And that's all the law is going to do is show me that God is perfect and I am not. So what happens to a person who simply is not righteous? I mean, we, we kind of have an ontological issue here. You're just not righteous before Christ. You, you just, you're not. doesn't matter. I can't make myself taller. I can pretend to be taller. I can stand on things and make it, but I will not meet the standard. And so here it is. Paul is saying to the believer or to the non-believer that like, hey, you've, you've got the standard. Now you know what covetousness is, right? Now, now you know how tall you need to be and you're not. Well, what does the person who is sinful do but say, cool, I ain't it. Might as well enjoy my sin. Uh, and this is an interesting thing. You'd be surprised how many people that they adopt this, we would call it an antinomian view of the law, where you just say, I don't meet it, party on, let's just enjoy all the sin we can. Um, and so that's why Paul says, you know, apart from the law, sin lies dormant. Like the language in some, it says sin lies dead. Nobody leave, believes that you're not a sinner before you're exposed to the law, but like, man, the law agitates that sin. Um, we're, we're just seeing that. And so can you maybe pay attention and think of how the Jew, maybe, specifically, would they get the law? And some of them are like, look at me, awesome. God must love us a lot because he gave us the law. Look how special we are. And then we start seeing that, like, oh, you're not measuring up. You're not measuring up. And how many times the, the what are supposed to be the believers of God rebel all the harder? You guys ever read the Old Testament and you want to slam your your hand against your forehead and say, like, what, what are you doing? Well, in sin, the law is only going to agitate you to more sin. Something else has to happen. But what Paul is making very clear is that the law is holy, God's commandments are holy. It is sin taking an opportunity. Does not mean that the law is evil. All right? So everybody's with me on that. Good? Any questions so far? Hanging on? Yes? Yes. However, there's a debate coming up in this next section. I would say, yes, we are. I think he is saying, for the unregenerate person, there are some that would argue that, no, maybe he's talking about the regenerate here. Um, I think next section he is going to start talking about the regenerate. Um, so continuing, could I get someone uh, to read 13 through 20? Do you want to take that one? Oh, hand up first. Yep. Good job, Greg. <laughs> go, go for it, brother. That which is good then become death to me by no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is I no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me 
that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do, what I do not want to do is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Yeah, okay, so... We've got to bring up a question here. There's a theological debate, believe it or not, in verses 13 through 20. Um, I know you can't imagine theological debates coming up in the book of Romans, uh, right? Let me let me just point out a couple of things here. Do you all notice that something changes about the tense here? Uh, anybody notice that in the first section here of chapter 7, and I would argue in, in most of Romans so far, Paul's using the past tense. He says things like, uh, it says, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Past tense, right? Produced covetousness, right? But all of a sudden, and he says, but then that which is good bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me uh, through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and that and through the commandment might become uh, I might become sinful beyond measure. Oh, side note, we should probably dwell on that a little bit. That like sin sees the in the law seizes the reality that like oh this is rebellion against God I'm gonna rebel even harder, and so what we see is sin becomes more wicked in light of the law. Not only are you seeing it because we're seeing God's perfect standard, but also sin is like rebelling. And it's like now I know how to rebel even more, right? And so it it brings it to this like comeuppance of like here's how evil it is. But Paul completely seems to change the theme here. Now, there are those who are going to say that Paul is actually talking about life before Christ in this next section. And I'm going to say, since he's changing to present tense, I think he's talking about the life in Christ in this next section. All right? So he says, in order that uh, sin might be shown to be sin. And then he does this whole thing where he says, for I do not do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For if I do not understand my own actions, uh, for I do not do what I want to, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. Uh, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Okay, so... That could be talking about the old life or the new, but can I just tell you that, like, I don't know any sinners that desire to do right. Right? Didn't we talk in Romans 1 that, like, sinner doesn't care. He wants to suppress the truth in his unrighteousness. Now, you could make a case that Paul is saying here, oh, when I was a Jew, before I knew Christ, I, I wanted to obey the law, and I couldn't. And I knew that there was something missing there. You can maybe argue that during his time of conviction is what he's talking about. Maybe. Maybe, just maybe. But man, he pounds down on the whole present tense thing. Let's keep going. As for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do, I do not want, is what I keep on doing. Man, I mean, that's present tense. Present imperfect tense, which means ongoing. He's struggling with this. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I'm going to continue in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law, waging war against the, God, against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because understand, I don't, I don't recall another question that Paul poses in all of Romans that he answers with something other than meganoita, except for right here. I mean, so far, have you noticed? Like He always says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, absolutely not. Uh, is, the law, uh, is the law sinful? No, absolutely not. How many things that we see in here? And then he gets to this, and he's like, who's going to set me free from this body of death? I'm a wretched man. And what does he say? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only answer other than no, or at least... I shouldn't say the only. I'm not scrolling through each of them to check. But so far, I think the only answer to a rhetorical question other than no is Jesus. Right? So you know the joke about the Sunday school answers and that you can always answer Jesus? When it's Paul, just say no, 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 Jesus. No, 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 no. All right? So can we just see? I'm going to say, I want to recognize there's different themes on this or different theories on this. I think you can make a case that Paul is talking about his old life before Christ when he was wrestling through the law. Like you can make a case for that. But can I just tell you, this sounds a lot more familiar to the actual Christian life. I'm walking. I see that God is perfect. I know I'm not. I know I'm set free from sin. I don't have to obey that old slave master of sin anymore. And yet temptation is strong. I still have a sin nature that's craving the sin. And I'm continually at war with it. And there are times where I fall into sin again. And I'm like, oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to set me free from this? And the answer, just like who will justify me, the answer to who will sanctify me is Jesus will sanctify me. Same thing. He's the one who paid my sin debt. He is the one setting me free from the body of death. Now, spoiler alert, next chapter is Romans 8. What do we get to in Romans 8? The promise that he will sanctify us, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, brothers and sisters, you all know that I hold to the reformed Calvinist view uh, of scripture. Well, one of the things that I would say here is that Romans 8 passage we're about to get to that says that he has predestined us to be conformed in the image of his son. Like, it's not just that you're predestined to go to heaven instead of hell. You're predestined to be righteous with Jesus. He's paid your sin debt. Awesome. He is going to make you holy. That's good news when I'm struggling with sin. And here Paul is writing it in, and he's like, thanks be to God. The victory comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's, brothers and sisters, that's encouraging. Now, a couple of things. Uh, He says, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so he's just acknowledging this is an ongoing struggle. Uh, Can I make a couple of theological implications here? Um, I'm just going to say these things. Every now and then, I will engage with a person who is a believer who says something akin to, I don't really sin anymore, or I don't really sin that much. Right. And I get really nervous. Now, normally when I continue, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Normally they say, well, sin is only sin if I'm actively volitionally choosing to do it right then. You know, it's kind of like and I'm like, well, but so pride doesn't count. Right. And some of them would say, no, not really. 
Um, like I have to have actively say pride thought right now, and I'm awesomer than everybody. Like you, and so that is um, that is a view called sinless perfectionism that I would say is is a really bad view because it requires you to lower your view of God and elevate your view of yourself. Um, now we can also say that like praise God, we have a hope of being sanctified that hopefully sin is going to diminish over time. But the apostle Paul is saying, wretched man that I am. And he's talking about this war that's in him. If the Apostle Paul is warring like that, I'm a little nervous about saying that I'm not warring. Now, I do think it's a whole other thing to say, like, well, I just sin all the time and I'm the worst ever. I'm like, well, that's not good because God took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. You think something is different now, but there's a war there now. And so I get really, I want to encourage you, if you are a faithful brother or sister in Christ, and there are just days where you're like, oh, man, did it again. How did I let pride creep up like that? Or, ah, I lusted again. What in the world? Why? Or like, I'll, you know that cringe feeling you get when you're like, how could I have been so stupid? Right? I, oh, I should have been way more honest. And I, I used language that just kind of washed over what that really was so that somebody would think that, like, Man, and then later the Holy Spirit convicts you, or maybe your spouse or someone else was like, hey, I noticed this. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body? There are those who would be tempted right then to say, I must not be a real Christian. Right? I must have misunderstood. I'm not really saved. Let me just tell you, that's actually the enemy lying. The fact that you wrestle with sin the fact that you struggle with sin is actually the surest sign that you're a faithful believer. The person who doesn't care, doesn't struggle, either because they don't believe that they're that sinful or because they don't care, we would call that antinomianism, those guys I worry about all the time. Um, and let me tell you, as a pastor, I've sat down with some and I'll say like, hey, where are you at spiritually? What's going on? They're like, ah, oh, you know, I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was five. And, um, you know, they're in open sin. They continue. They have no spiritual fruit. And they're like, oh, I'm not worried because I prayed that prayer way back. And I'm like, you should be worried. Right. In the same way that like, well, before you didn't even care. I mean, I would say it sure sounds like somebody suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. That's scary. That's Romans one kind of scary. Right. Whereas the believer who's just like, oh, you guys, there's a reason why we have confession every Sunday. There's a reason why we have uh, men's and women's Bible studies where you can confess uh, different things there if necessary, right? There's a reason why God has invented marriage and the family where there's room for confession there. And what happens when somebody confesses? We say, receive God's grace, brother. Like, it's already paid. Already paid, man. We're, we're being sanctified together. So let me... Um, let me just offer some encouragement here that there is some sense, I would say, in which Romans 7 seems to be a climactic building. Um, those of you all who are familiar with rhetorical style and writing, can you kind of sense the tension here where he's like, what I want to do, I don't want to do. What I do, I don't want to do. Ah, oh, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? Like that's, this is a climax in the book. He starts with everybody's a wretched sinner to praise the Lord, you're saved by grace through faith alone, to you shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. The law is not bad, but the law reminded you of your sin and you sinned more. Now you're trying to do good and you can't and it's terrible and you're suffering. Jesus has you covered. Cool? This is kind of like a tipping point in Romans. 
It's all of this good news, and then it's like, oh, I'm still not there. Okay, let me just encourage. I'm going to actually skip ahead just a little bit. We're not going to study all of it. And I'm going to read, for the sake of our encouragement, verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8. Ah, you know what? We'll start earlier than that. We'll just go to 26. We're going to study this next week. Not next week, the next. Um, But would you just, for the sake of encouragement, listen to me. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Familiar, right? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That means, I mean, have you ever been praying and sin starts creeping into your mind? You're like, what in the world? Right? Praise God. The Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf according to God's perfect will. Sometimes I'm praying and I'm like, "Ah, is this my will? Is this what God wants me to pray? I'm praying in obedience, but what if I don't even know what to pray? The Holy Spirit's interceding for me according to the perfect will of God. And he knows that perfect will because he is God and he is a part of that will and he is interceding for us. So continuing on. And he who searches the hearts. All right, so in verse 28. And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, I know that we normally throw this out as kind of a Jeremiah 29, 11 type thing. Still accurate, by the way. Still accurate that he is working all things together for our good. But there is a certain sense in which this is in the context of our sanctification. Right? This is this is still has Romans 7 in mind and wretched man that I am. So I'm understanding this in that context, knowing that like God is interceding with himself on my behalf, and then all things that are happening are according to his will for my good and his glory, which means that my suffering seems to be playing a part in my sanctification. Or also my blessings are paying a playing a part in my sanctification. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I will just point out, I know we're not really looking at this through a Calvinistic lens here, but the language of foreknew has to do with perfect, intimate knowledge. That like God said, that guy's my kid, and that woman's my daughter, that one, that one's mine. I know them as I know my own child because they are my own children, God says. So this whole foreknew has nothing to do with him looking through the corridors of time or anything like that. It is God knows you. And then it says, because of this, this is whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's saying, he's like, because that's my kid, I'm going to make him look like my firstborn. My firstborn Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brothers, and the rest of them are going to look like him because they're his brothers and sisters. Now, really clear, important, this doesn't mean that we're going to be God like Jesus. It means we're going to be his like adopted brothers, uh, in case any quite crazy theology starts creeping in there. And then it says, whom he predestined, he called. He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Sound familiar? That was the whole first part. Justified means declared righteous. He's justified us. So if you're justified, you're on this track. He says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this language in this section here is all three aspects of salvation. 
that you were known before the foundation of the earth. You were predestined to be made like Christ. And so with that in mind, he starts going through these three steps of making sure you are justified, you are sanctified, and you will eventually be glorified in that you will be taken away from the very even effects of sin in your body. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. We call this the golden chain of redemption, where we have eternity past, where God is foreknowing, and eternity future, and in between is predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified, all the way into eternity. Um, so I, I could not mention that. When we're wrestling with sin, and I would say probably all of us are wrestling with sin. And if not, be worried, right? But if you're wrestling with sin, be encouraged, praise God. One day you're going to be made perfectly holy. So all that said, uh, I'm going to close us in prayer and we're going to go to the gospel. Christy, you're on for the gospel, right? Uh, Father God, thank you. Um, I know I haphazardly made it through Romans 7 today. Um, and we'll just acknowledge that uh, we are imperfect. Uh, we are still suffering the effects of sin in our bodies. And yet, Lord, you look at us and see the righteousness of Christ And then Jesus is doing an ongoing work to make us holy. And a day is going to come when our bodies are even made new so that we do not even struggle with sin as we once did. So God, thank you that you have predestined us to holiness. Make us fully like Christ and be glorified in Christ's name.